Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Linda Corinbuckers. Linda is an anthrozoologist, sociologist, and a philosopher who teaches sociology in Scottish further education. She's also a musician, a songwriter, a writer, and artist. Linda is editor-in-chief of the Student Journal of Vegan Sociology. Her recent paper, The Pepper Pig Paradox, was published in the Journal for Critical Animal Studies. It's well worth a read. Fascinating insights. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write us a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? We've had a couple of very kind reviews recently, and it's really helpful in getting the word out to a wider audience. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info. Or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll also be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone who's interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good, thank you. All good, thanks. <laughs> good, good. It's great to have a proper conversation, albeit over, over the web instead of in person, but this is the way of things these days but yeah thanks very much for having me yeah it's a pleasure so as we talked before and queuing this up this is i guess a series of what i'm branding sentientist conversations uh, and they it's they center on answering the two deepest philosophical questions what's real how do we choose what to believe and the i guess the epistemology of understanding our position in reality such as it is but mm. also what matters morally and how our morality is grounded if it is how we extend compassion what's the boundary of moral considerability as well mm -hmm. and it's largely a conversation about people's personal philosophical journey about how their views on those two big questions have shifted over time if they have we'll talk a little bit about implications for the future as well and i'm setting it in the context of this worldview called sentientism which as you're aware you know, the term has got roots in the 1970s in academia but i'm trying to recast it as i guess a modern naturalistic worldview that says when we're thinking about what's real and what to believe, we should use evidence and reason to provisionally and pro probabilistically hold beliefs with open-mindedness and humility. And when it comes to what matters, the clue is in the name that we should focus on sentience so that we should extend compassion and moral consideration to any being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish or experience anything with a quality of valence, if you like. Mm. So it's super simple, yeah. evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. But I'm talking to people who disagree with that philosophy and agree with it as well. So it will be fascinating to see how the conversation plays out and understand okay. your own personal views. Absolutely. Yep. Indeed. Cool. <laughs> so before we get onto that, for people who don't know about your work already, how would you best introduce yourself? Oh gosh, that is that is a question. <laughs> um, you can go uh, on as much as long as you like. A jack of all trades, really. Well, <laughs> the reason that got me to be here is the the paper that I wrote on Peppa Pig, which is, so I guess I'm a bit of an activist academic, really. Yeah. I've been involved in the animal rights movement and the vegan movement for more than 20 years now. And that was a kind of natural progression into social science and whatnot that ultimately led to this paper, which is questioning um, the cognitive dissonance of, of people and how we kind of teach that to our kids. So there's the critical animal studies scholar element, yeah. and that's also involved with, I'm also involved with the, a journal of uh, vegan sociology which is a new student journal from the international association of vegan sociologists which is only set up uh, last last year last spring and the editor-in-chief no less so yeah, yeah. appointed <laughs> not sure maybe that's a, a, a nod to the scottish bit of me and the plans and whatever but yeah so we're just in the process of uh, peer reviewing and stuff now and we're hoping that's going to come out before the second conference um, in october by day i teach sociology and further education college uh, college here in scotland i'm a mum i'm a semi-professional musician or at least i have been when before lockdown happened yeah and i'm an amateur artist as well so there's a whole bunch of different strings to the bow yeah um, but yeah the reason i'm here is the the kind of philosophical element of my studies and my interests combined with the social sciences and people generally people's yeah. attitudes yeah fascinating thank you as, as such a range of yeah experiences and contributions and your academic yeah. work as well is fascinating because you i think you described yourself as a anthrozoologist but you've done degrees mm. in philosophy and you have a sociological perspective as well so yeah, yeah it's know, going to be fascinating I just to talk couldn't to you. decide I couldn't decide what was most <clears throat> important because I think there's elements of all of it and yeah. that's where I did the master's in anthropology uh, anthropology a couple of years ago and that was the first time I really got a chance to take the politics degree sociology 
philosophy and psychology and mush them all together and come up with stuff. So I guess I don't really have an actual approach or a, or a specific theoretical belief system, but yeah, it's a bit of a mishmash of all the best of everything. But I think that interdisciplinary approach is so powerful as well. And in a way, I approach it from a very amateur perspective where I'm fascinated in lots of different things. So I might go and read the Wikipedia page. Whereas <laughs> I think you and one of my previous guests, uh, Claudia Hirtenfelder, she described it as having an addiction to getting degrees. So when I get interested in something, I read the Wikipedia page. I think when mm. she or you get interested in something, you go and get another degree in it. So Yeah, I'm now at the stage <laughs> I could probably pay for the bathroom <laughs> with all the, the qualifications. I'm still at it. So I started PhD in a couple of months' time, and uh, and that's focusing on um, vegan children and the experience of vegan children in education and just in the, the world generally, especially yeah. in the UK. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to stop. And then I'll do postdoctoral stuff. And then it's not for the... It's not for the kudos of the degree. It's to just, I don't know, it's almost to prove to myself that I, I definitely know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But you can know it anyway. And that's what I was saying to you um, before we we um, started recording that, that amateur, there's no such thing as an amateur philosopher. You either are or you aren't. My very first philosophy professor told me that. Yeah. I said, I want to know when I can call myself a philosopher. And he said, you can. Now. So, like, ah, oh, bonus. I should have saved myself a few, Bob, as well. Brilliant, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to start by focusing on the first of those two deep philosophical questions, what's real? So for many people, mm. that's a story about whether they grew up in a naturalistic or an atheistic sort of context in society and household or one that was more mm. spiritual or religious and how their views on that side of philosophy, what's real, what really exists has mm. shifted over time if it has. So we're going to, yeah, if you like, wind the clock back to before all the degrees to when you're a, <laughs> a, a kid philosopher. But it'd yeah. be great to know that story of how your it's, views it's really started out and how they shifted. I suspect I was a philosopher from when I was really little because I apparently woke my mum up in the middle of the night when I was, it would have, I would have, it was before I was nine years old because my dad still lived at home. And I asked her why salt and pepper were called salt and pepper and they weren't called something else instead. Why weren't they called table and chair? And she's like, oh, I don't know, go and ask your dad. <laughs> anyway, I just want to add like, you know, the, the grown up answer wasn't always enough. Yeah. I'm very fortunate that my dad would sit with the encyclopedias and whatnot. But in any case, um, getting back to the kind of roots of it all, morality, I was raised a uh, Christian Methodist in particular, Protestant mm. Methodist. My grand and grandpa were, so my mum was, and we were, my dad was raised Muslim, but he's from Mauritius. And he, when Mauritius was still a British colony when, when in the 60s when he came to the UK, and he met my mum in a really lovely story about pen pals and things anyway they uh, probably won't appreciate me going into all the detail in any case he became christian also we were raised then we went to church every sunday we went to sunday school and there's all these lovely stories about mary and martha and, and fishes and loaves of bread and stuff and all these things that you learn which i now realize were kind of trying to teach me right and wrong Mm, at the yeah. time they were just stories we were so small I don't really think I understood the significance of them my mum and dad separated when I was nine and we fell away from the church because there was an, a feeling that everyone's going to love one another and Jesus loves you and all that and really our house was quite an unhappy one and there mm. wasn't much love in it at that time my mum kind of uh, I suppose turned her back on religion but so did my dad ultimately he went back to being Muslim again remarried later in life and, and is still Muslim now. My mum is non-religious. I'm not sure she's atheist, mm. possibly. My dad is back to being Muslim again. And I'm probably more agnostic yeah. than anything. I'm not sure I would be. I'm, a, I'm quite a weak atheist if I was to be any. So I just, I'm not sure. I suppose it's the same as ghosts. I don't know if there's ghosts or not, but there might be. So I'm not going to say there isn't because I have no evidence. So um I have no evidence for or against the existence of God. Therefore, I think agnostic is probably the best uh, description. Yeah. But yeah, I and think... It's, and, and it's interesting because there's people define atheism and agnosticism in different ways, but it does seem like mm. there's a, a sliding scale. <clears throat> and I, I quite like the definition of atheism. That just means you lack a belief in God. It doesn't mean you're convinced there isn't one. Mm. It just means you don't hold the belief that there is. So it's still, to my mind, even an atheist can be open-minded about the possibility, even though personally I think uh, yeah. it's vanishingly unlikely. <laughs> you know, it's still a possibility I, I, there. I think it's interesting, yeah. I would say there's, there, there is a, a scale, like I said, I don't know if I said mild or weak agnostic yeah. or something, where, yeah. where I'm not convinced there's a God, but I don't know, there might be one. So if anyone else thinks there is one, well, then 
let them get on with that if that yeah. helps them to make their lives better and to have faith that helps them through their day great yeah i, yeah. I don't need to that. people yeah i don't need that and i don't think i ever needed it yeah and now looking back i think i always kind of just looked at those sunday school teachings as just stories i don't yeah. really think i believed that there was this guy and that guy and Pontius Pilate and all these and all this stuff happening and I don't think I believed it. Yeah, um, yeah, really. it's interesting. Any more than I believed that it was Santa or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, and I think it affects children in very different ways. I think for many, it, it like you, it's just stories, right? And it, you don't end up believing there's some, you know, mm. man with a beard in the sky who's judging mm. you. And for other people, it, it sets very deeply into their yeah. their their child's mind that this is actually deeply real so it's interesting i think as long as it's positive i don't think there's any harm in having faith if it creates a positive attitude towards other people to the planet to all its inhabitants yeah and to yourself yeah no i agree and i think there's from the guests i've spoken to so far most of them had some of them grew up in a very atheistic context Mm -hmm. but most of them started out like as i did in a some form of religious context and for some i think like you and me it was quite a gentle thing and it didn't really Mm. feel difficult to drift away from that for other people it was extremely hard religion was baked into their culture into their family's identity and it was a very difficult journey for them but but for some people it's been more i never really believed i think like you Mm. for other people it's more about evidence and reason and just for example looking at the contradictions or Mm. not finding enough evidence and just saying look i don't think this is real so because of an epistemological challenge they move away from it and sometimes that's a sort of comparative religion thing as well they look at all these religions and go Mm. these feel like they were probably made up by powerful men in the last couple of thousand years rather than absolutely i think when i I was doing a bit of soul searching at one point in my early 20s um and and um i think i was looking at a lot more of the kind of ancient religions yeah just to see what there must there must be something here that's good for everyone and not just for i don't know uh, men or white men or powerful white men or whatever and Taoism I thought was incredibly interesting um, I think that kind of the, there's the the three tenets of that so you've got a bit of compassion being one of them and being yeah. humility you know having humility that kind of thing so I always thought that was kind of interesting but I just I don't like labels yeah um, I've never really liked labeling anybody or anything so I don't think I would call myself anything plus I still got that I, I like to have the freedom to choose the bits of things that I think make sense yeah yeah I like it yeah so that that's one of the reasons why people have um, moved away from a religious worldview is that epistemology mm. but the other one is actually ethics so one of the other angles that people will take is that they will look at certainly in some of the more established religions and look at some mm. of the ethical systems that yeah. flow from those and just go that isn't right whether it's homophobia or sexism or some other sort of form of tribalism whether mm. it's putting obedience to a deity above the suffering of you know even your yeah. own family members those types yeah. of things and they look at those and go this can't be right <laughs> yeah this can't be right either yeah. so it's an interesting mix yeah. of the two and yeah, it is yeah. frustrating in a way because while there's you know, I think some deeply warped negative ethics that can flow through mm. a variety of different religious systems. Most of them do have a compassion that is genuinely about, oh, sorry, a, a core that is genuinely about universal compassion and yeah. love. And there's positive elements of that community that flows through most of them as well. Yeah, they seem to have that as a central tenet. <clears throat> most of them, I don't think there's any that don't at least claim to have that as a rule, if you like, of the, you know, yeah. following it. But the practical application of that seems to go so horribly wrong. Yeah, and does, you know, I live in does. this. I live in the central belt of Scotland, and here even Christianity is divided down the middle. Yeah, you know, with Protestantism and, and Catholicism, it causes violence. It's caused um, untold problems within families, within relationships, and where people are sometimes, in some cases, this is also a very Scotland is predominantly white, as most of the UK yeah. is, but some people are more bothered about whether you're Catholic or Protestant than what color you might be yeah yeah which is fascinating to me as a first generation child of an immigrant it's really it really causes so much grief for so many people when it's not applied and i think the way it's meant to but again everything's about interpretation perception which is half the problem it is and i think part of the reason why that compassionate ethic flows through all religions i think it's partly because it predates it because if you look even to evolutionary history of where need to cooperate and yeah. therefore have compassion for others and co- collaborate Absolutely. existed even before humans so in a way and i'm i'm clearly biased because i'm uh, in favor of a sort of naturalistic morality but it seems to me that if you strip out the 
challenging ethics of all different religious systems and pull them back to this universal compassion, you end up with something that's rich and positive, but also yeah. that you don't really need a supernatural justification for that at all. No, I agree. Just the very fact that we can live communally and like you say, that collaboration and cooperation between within a tribal sense, but also between yeah. Um, because there would have been necessity. People talk about tribalism as being something that's just, you get to the end of that tribe and it stops and then there's the next one. But actually, there's a, uh, there would have been a lot more collaboration needed back then yeah. as well. And in an anthropological sense, in some places, that's still the case. But yeah, really fascinating stuff gosh there's people sitting writing about this as we speak yeah absolutely <laughs> and that, that brings us really nicely onto the second big question what matters yeah. and how should we express compassion and what should we have moral consideration for and yeah. for, for some people that's one of the reasons why they're nervous about moving from a religious or a supernatural worldview is because however warped those ethical systems are they are an ethical system right mm -hmm. so you have it normally some form of deity that instantiates good and evil you have a, a judge that will assess your moral actions and you know yeah. maybe punish you before or after death or both so there is some form of reassurance in that and some people are nervous that if you move away from a supernatural or a externally mm. defined morality that you'll lose any moral moorings whatsoever i certainly don't feel that's the case and you don't either i don't no. think you're running around being deeply immoral because you don't have a, a god looking over your shoulder oh but, if only <laughs> so, so, so how would you describe I guess that if, if your morality is grounded in anything, what, what does matter? What matters is, I guess, is compassion. Mm. It's social justice, kindness, consideration. It's really bound up in, in veganism. And I don't mm. mean that in terms of a plant-based diet, which is I would see is very separate and very specific about yeah. what you eat. It's the whole um, ethical process around being vegan and, and looking at, is there a way to do something differently from the norm? that minimizes harm i don't want to kind of end up in a utilitarianism kind of discussion here because it's not necessarily as straightforward as that yeah and quantifying harm but if i can use this product instead of this product and this product is causes less harm than that to aquatic life or to um, animals in laboratories or what have you then why would i not yeah it's like a no-brainer to me and i think that i have a lot of interest in anti-racism and gender campaigns because so much of this is bound up in categorization yeah that's, that's socially constructed we have male uh, masculine and feminine genders that's that's in this culture it's very culturally specific we have races that we seem to need to again it's this labeling and all this kind of thing that's been done by people to people so if that's what we do to other people it's no surprise at all then that what we do is we we fail to extend consideration to animals in yeah. the way that we could. So if we saw life, just general life as being important, regardless of um, whether or not, and, and I suppose this is where I maybe go a bit further than sentientism in a way, because I'm not sure that you need to have, I'm not sure there needs to be evidence that you are capable of experience or feelings mm -hmm. in order to have to be considered. And even then, the evidence that's required for sentientism is often evidence that we've decided as humans is yeah. adequate, right? Yeah. So if you start from that perspective, well, what if there's more to it? Just because we can't evidence that this fish understands that it's got a family, and there has been recent research that's shown a lot of new perspectives about things, which is great. But the absence, actually, the absence of evidence doesn't mean the alternative is true. So, yes. so I wouldn't even think there has to be evidence just for if, if something is capable of being alive and finding food and reproducing another generation of itself, I don't like using it, but I will just yeah. for the kind of general discussion, then that's enough to me. Yeah. That said, there's usually a line you have to draw, right? Because yeah. well, people draw the line at various, I know a couple of people who are fruitarian, so they would have an issue with picking something out of the ground or whatever. Um, my line, I suppose, for what it's worth, and, and I might be wrong, and I'm willing to accept that this has been a philosophy that's developed a lot, a, across a lot of time. My line is, if it isn't capable of running away from you yeah. or escaping you, it's probably fair game for want of a much more animal-friendly expression. Yeah. So I don't have an issue with how can I tat you at the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I should translate. Yeah. Pulling and I'm happy with p picking an apple off a tree. Yeah. Um, because that isn't capable of escaping a danger. 
Yeah. Now, whether that's something they are consciously aware of or not in terms of the animal kingdom, I almost think is irrelevant. Yeah. The fact that silk is made by all the things they do to silkworms to produce silk. I don't know if a silkworm's got sentience, possibly not, but yeah. it doesn't matter to me because it's a little living creature that could, would, given the opportunity, get away from danger. Yeah, yeah, agree. But I think it's aware of that danger or not. Yeah, no, thank you. That's really clear. And I think where different sentientists will have different views, mm. but I personally end up in a very similar place to you. I think for slightly different reasons, but mm. I get, I think I get to the, essentially what's the same conclusion about where to draw that line. And it would be good to come back to that because you raise some in, in, interesting challenges around it's us as humans who are defining this stuff so there's always a danger because humans are good at this right of defining mm. things in ways that are good for us um, purpose, yeah. so it would be good to come back to that mm. as well but it would be interesting again to wind the clock back to your childhood and how early did this stuff start to resonate with you this was quite late to me i was an adult by the time i figured this stuff out yeah. Well, yeah, up <clears throat> until I was in high school, I don't think I questioned anything that I was told. I just got on with that. I was really quite conformist, which is ironic. If anybody knows me now, they would know that's absolutely <laughs> not the case. And into high school, I had a whole bunch of rage just from hormones and teenage that really weren't particularly related to anything. I played a lot of very loud music. So I was in my early 20s before I started thinking about this. So we're going back, I'm giving my age away, but we're going back over 20 years now. And it was just, I ride motorcycles. I would stop at the side of there in the springtime and stop and there'd be highland cows in the field. And I love them. I loved cows. I thought they were gorgeous, big eyelashes and lovely, lovely looking things. So I would stop the bike and I'd get off and I'd pull some grass out and I'd come over and I'd feed them and all that. And I wouldn't think twice about the fact that I also ate them. Yeah. Not those specific ones, I don't think, but that, you know, I, I didn't make any connection. Not because I wasn't, I would have said I was an animal lover, as many people do. Yeah. And people support the SSPCA, the RSPCA down south. People have these support for these organizations that deal with animal welfare and they don't want to see suffering and cruelty and they're quite willing, but they still sit with dead animals on their plate. And I hadn't made the connection, didn't make the connection, not purposely. It just was never made clear to me. Yeah, And uh, I was uh, 23 or four before I made the connection. And it was literally like a, a slap in the face. I happened to be out shopping with my mum and my gran in, in a place not far from here in Falkirk. And somebody had, I still don't know who the person was, and I hope one day I'll figure it out. But it was a Greenpeace campaigner who had a stall petitions and leaflets and things. And I don't know why. I was probably sneaking a cigarette, actually. And that's why I wasn't with my mum and my grand at the time. She said, I'm just going to walk over there and have a quick... Anyway, that's a whole other thing we won't talk about. Um, so off I went to this thing and I was having a wee look. You know, oh, that's interesting. No, oh, I didn't know that. And I signed the petition about, I don't know what it was to do with uh, whales or something. I'm not sure. And beside it was this little leaflet and it had a little calf on it. A little picture of a little dairy calf. And I was like, oh, that's lovely. And I picked it up and I was like, that's really cute. And honestly... I don't, I've always been, I was quite a smart kid too. It's not that I wouldn't have been able to go, oh, in order to have this needs to be. I just never, ever was in my consciousness at all. Yeah. So. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the most thing. And like I say, that, that's me being, I would have said, really smart. Uh, so, and, and suddenly I'm faced with this little face, which I was attracted to because I love cows, right? So there it is. And before, um, this was before the internet really and websites and definitely before social media. So you had to turn out, you had to cut out the little slip on the back of the leaflet, write your name and address, yeah. post it off. And within the next week or two, this bunch of stuff arrived in my house and I went vegan straight away by the time wow. I'd finished reading a couple of pages. That's from me eating. That day that I looked at the cow, I was like, all right, and you know, actually, and I went vegetarian really then at mm. that point. I was kind of like, right, I need to stop eating this. But I hadn't really thought about everything else that's involved in the, the, the cycle factory farming and whatever. Yeah. So by the, within a fortnight or however long it took for that pack to arrive, I don't even know the date. I feel like I should know the date. <laughs> yeah. People celebrate their vegan anniversaries yeah. and I don't know the date, but I just know it was summertime of 99. And um, that was me vegan by the fun time I'd finished reading that, that those articles and then I was like right I need to tell people about this people just don't know I didn't know yeah so I set off on this quest as people do when they first get involved in a cause Mrs Angry Phil Livingston there I was did you know and folk are like yeah Linda right okay 
and suddenly I was outcast <laughs> from various conversations of, you know, Linda, we really were fed off of hearing about this. But I just thought maybe just people don't know. I didn't know. Yeah. And then I knew and then I changed. So all I have to do is tell other people and then they'll change. And then they didn't. And at that point, I thought, this is interesting. And in some vague attempt to try and figure out the answer, I signed up for a higher psychology class in the A-level equivalent at our local college, which is now the one I teach sometimes psychology too. Oh, cool. Which is really funny. So I signed up night classes and didn't get any answers, just more questions. I thought I would be able to figure out in one year why people didn't do what I did. Yeah. And the third It should be really obvious. Yeah. I do cause his harm. Here's the harm. Oh my gosh. I don't want to be involved with that. Therefore, I should stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And there are alternatives. Easy peasy, right? Oh no. No. So another another, um, another couple of decades of study later. (laughs) Yes. And that's why I just keep going. I still don't really have an answer. Well, I do. I got a bit more Mm. close to an answer recently with the Peppa Pig thing. It is about cognitive dissonance. Which, I mean, that theory is going back to the 50s, only 70 years old, that theory nearly. Yeah. And this idea that we separate, again, it's about labeling and categorizing again, which I really have a, I've always had a bit of an issue with. And I guess it fits really my philosophy. If you say that's food and that's a pet, and there was some furore this week about horse milk. And I remember watching, I think I might have mentioned it in something, a Richard and Judy interview thing, you know, a chat show. And this going back a while now. I couldn't even find it when I was trying to reference it. And it must have been in an essay. Anyway, they were going to be tasting horse milk. And I remember our face being people that are listening and not watching won't, won't see the face. But you can imagine the, the look of disgust. You know, it was like, oh, yeah. my God, just holding their nose. But, but you drink cow's milk. How's that any different? Yeah. Horse milk, cat milk, dog milk, whatever. It doesn't matter. You drink the milk of another mammal. And that's what that is. But we're so normalized. And that really is how I ended up being interested in sociology more than anything because I realized that it's a lot more about power and money maintaining norms benefit a lot of people whilst at the same time harming people let alone animals so if you you don't care about animals you should surely care about the the millions of people that are what's the word I'm looking for oppressed or yeah exploited within a system yeah yeah exactly and and that's another part of that the journey Mm. of moral consideration that many people go through is one is spanning that species boundary and recognizing that other beings are you know, capable of suffering and can be harmed as well, but also extending that sufficiently broadly within mm. our own species. And we know, yeah. you know, the deep problems that remain where people have restricted yeah. or partial moral consideration, even for other humans based on Yeah, the, the last or... couple of years in particular, I think they've really brought that into the fore yeah. between what happened in the States and here. And, for and a reminder I, of how far we've got to go. Yeah. yeah, it's almost, I don't know if we've gone backwards, but no, I don't think we have actually. No, mm. I think people have always, I think it became less acceptable to vocalize a lot of this stuff for a yeah. while and people talking about the I mean, political correctness gone mad and all this the moral police and all. Mm. but actually why not that we should have more of that but then if your morals are different from someone else's this is where the challenges lie which is why we're having this conversation right yeah i agree how, how is there a a right way full stop i don't know i feel yeah. there's i feel it's really obvious but and we'll come back to that in the, the final section of the conversation which is yeah. about the future and we'll sort of dig into the frustrations and the challenges but it, I, it'd be good to it's been great to understand your sort of story of how you got to where you are now and mm. i guess to set out how, how i think i end up at a similar place to you in terms of where you set that boundary in my sense almost definitionally morality once you put supernatural morality to one side which mm-hmm. is God says, or it's obedience, sure. or it's his list of rules. Once you put that to one side and say, we're going to have a more naturalistically based mm. morality. For me, it almost feels tautological that you have to be concerned with harm and suffering. And because yeah. morality almost by definition is a concern for others. And if, if you have a concern for others, you're concerned for their perspective and their experiences. Mm-hmm. So on that basis, any being that has a perspective or experiences should be within the scope of our moral consideration. So it's odd because it almost feels tautological, but then tautologies yeah. are true, right? Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. See, it's difficult because I have a bit of a kind of maybe more a humanist kind of tack to this where, and it's interesting because even within humanisms, people can't, even within the religions, people can't decide and there's different factions within a religion. So I guess this is no different really, but from the from a humanist perspective which isn't just concerned with humans but it acknowledges yeah. we are humans right we're all human and we have abilities most of us are lucky enough to have abilities to reason and whatnot um there must surely be uh drawing a line is almost like you, you, 
by drawing a line, you're setting a, a, a limit to yeah. how far you're willing to be moral. But then it's interesting because I also was looking at green criminology as part of one of my degrees and they're talking about the rights of land and this kind of thing. And I thought, oh, that gets really... I actually sat, it, it caused me a lot of brain ache for a while going, right, maybe I need to extend the boundary that yeah. I've already set here because I can see that I understand what they mean. This is this is still alive in the sense that it's not static per se. Oh, it's got a, it's got an interest in the interest of nature. It was I forget who wrote it now. Stone, I think, ironically. Yeah. Anyway, I can't remember, but I, I did pull back from that a little bit because I thought I'm still trying to ascertain exactly where where I'm at just now without having to think a little bit too far ahead. But I do still think there's scope for me to extend it further, even despite twenty yeah. odd years of. Um, I just went straight from eating meat and not thinking about anybody but myself really to be honest I was like a typical teen everything the world revolved about around me and all my problems and all that stuff and then suddenly going from that within a few years to being anything that can move I need to help mm. or stop people harming if I can't help them I can at least minimize the harm to them even if I can't rescue them and then I rescue dogs and all that. Yeah, I don't think I've answered whatever question it was you had. I've forgotten. I've just gone on a bit of a no, but, it, but it is interesting because I think sentientism doesn't have a list of types of mm. species or beings or entities that are sentient. It yeah. just says naturalistically follow the science. And it suggests yeah. we should you know, be provisional, so always open to new evidence, probabilistic. Mm. So the better the yeah. evidence is, the more confident you are. But you sure. don't have to prove sentience and you don't have to prove the non-existence of it either. It's just okay, a, yeah, yeah. It's a sort sure, of yeah. grading and a judging and a assessing in a more balanced way but i think but it also needs to be prudent as well so Mm. i I give the benefit of the doubt i don't require prove something sentient i just need enough confidence that it could be and and that's why it partly brings me back to your position Mm. which is if something's mobile and an animal Mm. basically i think they've got a good chance that they're sentient because of evolutionary reasons because of information processing architectures because of behaviors and so on so that's you know why in essence i i take a maybe a more technical right yeah about what sentience is but i end up at the same place that it's basically Mm. you know human and non-human animals but i don't think plants have a subjective experience of suffering or flourishing i don't think rocks and rivers and other things do but i've had i've had the age-old thing you know yeah but there was an experiment once where a tomato moved away from a knife yeah yeah therefore you're a tomato killer i was like okay so that excuses your fishy thing or whatever so it's always really interesting the comebacks and the boundary might well be fuzzy as well i think it might ultimately prove impossible to say this is Mm. just non-sentient information processing that's going on in a stone or a rock or an electron or a tomato or whatever and and the information processing that i think is is sentience there might be a fuzzy boundary there as well but i don't think that renders it a a concept that's not you know that's not useful sure and i think there's that thing the earth is just a big ball of energy right we're all just energy and water and electrons and and stardust and yeah i'm not really um a biologist by any stretch of the imagination so if we're we're all connected so we and that's why okay so maybe i'm chucking a rock into some water skimming i'm not very good at that either (laughs) skimming a rock across some water isn't really harming anything unless it hits something on the way down that's living in the water but um it's that connection that we, I think we yeah. all need to remember more. I think so too. And I get that sense of wonder and connectedness. And in a sense, we are all one, right? We're all made mm. of atoms and quarks or whatever, even from a completely naturalistic worldview. Mm. Uh, whereas some people can get that same sort of sense from a more spiritual or supernatural perspective yeah. as well. But I think there's a lot of overlap in the emotions you feel when you, you know, consider that sort of transcendent. I think so. And I, I think that's um, a difficulty that some people who are, particularly religious but who also don't appreciate that that um, sense that they get of belongingness can happen within nature yeah you don't have to be within a congregation of other people who are worshiping the same god as you yeah. in order to feel that and maybe again I don't, I don't, I'm just trying to think about various people i know who are religious and how they would respond to this but i do feel that it's not enough to just stick to that idea that there has to be this is the only way you can benefit and a a lot of religious tenets a lot of it's about being good in order to get something back yeah in the next life or in death so sometimes it makes me question the 
Ah, oh, forgotten my words today. Yeah, if the only reason you're doing something is to gain later on, then you're not really doing it for the right reason. Yeah, Why does it almost devalue it? the compassion a little bit? A little. Yeah. Why don't you yeah. just do it? Because it's it's a good thing to do. If if you're minimizing the harm to everything possible in your life, mm. then great. Then it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I agree. It feels a little bit deeper and more genuine if it's just yeah. done. I mean, because in simple terms, and it sounds almost silly, but people say, what's the foundation of my morality? I'd almost say, I don't like suffering. I'm pretty confident other sentient beings don't like suffering either. Mm. So that that's so suffering and death are in isolation, bad things. Flourishing and life are in isolation, good things. And right. it shouldn't be rocket science. But when you apply that consistently, mm. it's radically different from most people's And I think actions. that inconsistency is one of the problems. And that takes us back to cognitive dissonance again. So yeah. um, can I... this inconsistency, we are taught, though. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I didn't want to stop you as well, because there was, mm. there was just before we get onto the cognitive dissonance and mm. you know, I guess, how do we persuade everyone else we're right and make the world a better place which is the next plan one of my frustrations and part of the reason i'm still quite keen to keep a focus on sentience or Mm. you know beings that are capable of being harmed is that it feels that there are some people who will take a much more holistic systemic approach to their moral consideration and i'd argue the central gravity of the environmental movement does this and it feels like it's a, a very generous massive broadening of moral consideration even to include rocks and rivers and plants and maybe Gaia as an entire ecosystem Mm. species and habitats and so on sure but often those people have conveniently excluded vast tranches of trillions of very obviously sentient beings that they continue to harm and hoping that's where you were going with that yeah because yeah yeah. because so I appreciate the generosity you Mm. know and and open-minded about a broader scope of moral consideration for sure don't exclude any of the very obviously sentient beings from consideration and that that approach and people talk about we're part of a holistic system we're all interconnected life is life and it all sounds nice and wonderful and then they'll say and as part of that natural system life consumes life and we Mm. are part of that cycle and we're in a food chain and Oh, that's yeah. great because I can keep eating my bacon. And, and all of a sudden I'm generous, yeah. open-minded, we're all one, leads mm. to, and it's just normal for me to continue having my Do bacon you know sandwich. Really <laughs> interesting about, and I'm not all environmental environmentalists for, for sure, but no, no. I feel like it almost, although it encapsulates so much, it's also almost single issue. I used to run Animal Rights Alliance up here in Scotland and God, we couldn't agree on the colour. It just was really fantastic to see. And again, it's, this is why I still end up looking at human behaviour, despite wanting to help non-humans. Mm. It's still ultimately human behaviour that's got, it's human behaviour that's destroyed everything so far and created these factory farming environments and not even those, whether it's factory farming or not. But somebody was interested in this animal or this experience of animals somebody wanted to do campaigning about horse racing somebody else wanted to do something about pig farming and and it was like but I'm focused on that so I'm not really there's more animals harmed there than there or that that the the suffering is worse here than somewhere else and I thought why can we not just all do all of it I don't obviously not all at once right that gets a little bit tricky but by focusing on one issue at a time and this is where I don't know if you're familiar with the abolitionist approach that Gary yeah. Francione um, takes. That's really when I, the first time I read something, having gone through Peter Stinger, Tom Regan, Mary Midgley, I'm like, this is mm. still not enough for me. That's not enough. Um, an arguing with my philosophy lecture, but he was great, actually. He was quite open to it. And I finally found this thing, right? The, the problem is that we think we can do what we want with it. So when you're talking about this, the the, the, the food chain that we're taught at school, which is one mm. of the reasons, again, I'm getting involved with what, what is the experience of vegan children? They're being taught, we're at the top and then all everybody else is and the way down the bottom, they didn't even have to think about those ones, the folk at the bottom of the, <laughs> the chain. And they eat them and, and right enough. And then they'll get people that say, yeah, but lions eat antelope. Yeah. So why can I not eat chicken? Well, it's not really the same thing. And I'm not sure and wild that, animals are a great moral exemplar for the human species. That's about survival <laughs> for them. Right? <laughs> it's absolutely about survival for them. Yeah. So, and I would, I, I remember actually with one of my students who I have a lot of debates with him about things. And he said that he would go vegan if I could evidence to him that he wasn't meant to eat meat. And I said, I will, I will eat a steak. I said, if you can down a cow and get it to the stage where it's edible for you with your bare hands. And that was, sorry, 
that's my line going off. That never was resolved, funnily enough. Yeah, I hope you didn't try. Uh, <laughs> no, I hope not either. I'm just trying to explain to people that's not how things work. It's, yeah, I mean, nat again, nat if... nature and evolution mm. and physics do not care about suffering, right? That's our right. choice as human beings to care about suffering. Right. So to use those as an example, as a guide and sure. good is, yeah. Yeah. Although one of my other students who's now um, a journalism student at university he had said to me and it, they make me think a lot which is great because you i've never got a final resting place mm. for these thoughts and um, he'd said if it is about evolution and nature then the the human brain has allowed us to develop all these things to farm mm. this animal or that animal or get honey from bees or whatever it happens to be so maybe that's not that's as natural was his argument mm. as uh, what we're claiming is natural. So I was like, oh gosh, I never even, that's a good argument that I would need to formulate a response to yeah. with a bit of care. Yeah. Although, so, although infanticide and rape are natural. Right. I don't, I just don't see that natural yeah. is a good moral guide to anything no, at isn't. all. Right? No, I mean, I, I would, that's why I come back to your, it's about, it's about need, you know, causing needless harm is mm -hmm. morally wrong. Yeah. yeah. That's it. You don't have to, don't do it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that should just be the strap line. And the question we were talking about going broader to plants and ecosystems and so on mm. is, is interesting because I think that there's a massive overlap between a sort of sentiocentric view and mm. an environmentalist view because I would see the non-sentient environment, rocks, rivers, yeah. plants, ecosystems, species. They're vital to those species. So their, their value for me is instrumental because I don't think a river right. can experience suffering. I don't think we can hurt it in that mm. sense or a rock no. or, a, or a mountain mm. or a piece of or a carrot either but we can cause secondary harm yeah Abs absolutely they can be damaged and they can be harmed but the reason they're important for me is mm. deeply important but it's an instrumental importance rather than right. an intrinsic one which it's is like why if, I've, if i have a rabbit here and a carrot here and right. i'm choosing which to eat mm. that is because one can experience suffering and the other right. one i don't think experiences anything at all sure but um, yeah you've got the kind of environmental issues and then you've got the kind of non-human animal issues or even human animals too. And then in a Venn diagram, right, we're in the middle. We should be just sit in the middle. It's just, it's just it's yeah. straightforward. Yeah. So I almost feel like there's a lot of people spending hours and hours of their lives, all these different moral considerations and philosophers being paid, whatever they're being paid to think about these things. It's just so simple. It doesn't require yeah. a lot of thought, I feel. But then maybe that's too simplistic. But I, I'm with you, right? I'm, I'm with you. I think there's almost... There's so many really deep, complex, difficult moral problems with interests that conflict and trade off. Mm. But the, so the most important thing for me, and that's partly my motivation behind talking around this mm. sentientism idea, is yeah. let's at least just get the basics right. Let's try right. and understand reality imperfectly by engaging with it honestly. And yeah. let's have moral consideration for any being that is sentient can experience suffering and you know or in your terms is able to or move likely around to, and yeah, and right. you know or likely to be or possible um, yeah. and that's it achieving that foundation for me is much more important than some crazy abstruse trolley problem that will never happen in real life it's, it's, and it leads yeah. on to the, the final section of our conversation about the future mm. because while there are some really difficult challenges there are also mm. some glaringly obvious win-win-win situations for humans non-humans yeah. the environment for everything yeah that i think to you and me seem blindingly obvious but our species is struggling um, to come to terms with and do anything about so that's the um, final section of the conversation really is you can either be more utopian and say look if we could magically find some way of persuading more people to be more generous with their compassion maybe take a more naturalistic grounded worldview what could that future potentially look like but then you can maybe come back to reality a little bit more and talk about some yeah. of your work about why we're finding it so hard to yeah, you know, move in that direction. I know that it is a bit of a utopian idea, I suppose, or ideal, but it's possible. Yeah. I did not envisage when I, when I first went vegan. I mean, the, the vegan society is an example. Vegan as, as a movement is not that old in, in the, the relative uh, space and time. So... Yeah, it has, in a way, it has very deep ancient roots in many cultures yeah. for thousands of years. Oh, yeah, for but sure. A, just... But in terms of the modern movement, yeah, it's pretty yes. new as a term. The as modern a word, as a... movement is, you know, not even 80 years old yet. Yeah. So yeah. It's, that's relatively fresh, just a baby. Yeah. You've got this whole, but it's not enough to just eat in a particular way. But when I first went and vegan, I'm just the turn of the century, my goodness, it's funny <laughs> to say it like that. The turn of the century when I was just the last, um, I couldn't see a point in time where things have shifted the way they have now in terms of plant-based options 
mm-hmm. right? So in terms of more kind or less harmful, because the two aren't always the same um, way of eating. So if you can get a plant-based burger, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that still looks like a burger and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. If people are just not eating the dead stuff, that's all that matters to me. I don't care what yeah. shape it is. So you've got a plant-based burger. There it is. And I know now that when my daughter gets to whatever teen and one, and all our pals and they're all going out to, I've never been to McDonald's in my life and other fast food restaurants are available. Um, I've not been in these, these places, but if, if it means that she can go to the places where everyone else is going and get, get food, which I understand now is the case, right? Any, <laughs> even the most unlikely of places you can go and there's going to be a plant-based option. Yeah. She feels less excluded. But it also means it's more the norm. So this, the dogma that has dominated discourse for years and years, that's the challenge. So what um, I feel like there needs to be some kind of deconstruction of that. And it's shifting because companies, mostly capitalists and profit-making companies, can see that there is a market for it. They can see that they can make profit from this. Now that's for processed foods and whatever, but fruit and veg and stuff, they still are cheapest chips really, relatively speaking. So you can still live incredibly well. A lot of it's about education and the fact that you do not need this plus this, the food pyramid that you're taught in school. Rather than it saying, I had a bit of an issue recently with um, somebody at my daughter's school because they were talking about, rather than talking about protein and calcium, they were talking about meat and dairy. Yeah. But they don't mean meat and dairy. What they mean is protein and calcium. So why not say that? So then everyone understands there are a variety of sources of this. Mm. And it just makes things, again, getting back to to being anti a whole bunch of stuff. I just think things could be much more inclusive for everyone. So if you're more inclusive and you have a wider range of plant-based food, that's how I see the future. I see a positive future of a plant-based future, whether it's a vegan future, I don't know. Because mm. I still think that people are still taught to be much more selfish than they would naturally be. And and again, I have no evidence for that. But maybe we need to use that selfishness to improve things. If there's been a study recently that there's going to be by 2040, they reckon, I can't remember if that's the date, cell-based meat is going to be as viable financially for the general public as meat is right now. So when you get away from the what happens to a chicken when it goes through the production line and it's electrocuted and all this stuff. I don't even know that you need to persuade someone with those kinds of images or that kind of story. I think you just need to say this. Maybe I think maybe people should go to sanctuaries and and, and meet chickens and know that they're little individuals. They're all very different. And mm. anyway, I'm getting off, off track. The future needs to be plant-based for everyone, for people in other places where they are struggling to survive because vast swathes of countryside have been taken over by people to produce animal feed yeah. <laughs> for the mass. That's where the, so- that's where the soya is going. It's not going right, to us. Right, right. No, that's not, I, you could, that, some people argue we could yeah. feed the whole world with all that stuff. So you've got, it's, it's, it's just a no-brainer. And I just can't, until the companies that make the money out of the exploitation and oppression can see that alternative way of making the same money mm. without the exploitation and oppression. I worry still there's going to be issues around workers' rights and various things like that. But that's something that humans have little problem supporting, right, in terms of yeah. campaigning against. So that's a, a, a kind of multiple attacks. So and it's the next generation to be a little bit more considerate too and more consistent. Yeah. And it's interesting that you've laid those out because I think some people look at the abolitionist approach mm. and think it's too extreme and more about sort of moral mm. purity that if we just say, look, mm. this is wrong, you should stop, then people mm. will stop. And and I think, you know, I'd love that to be the case, but I think yeah. we just, it's, you, it will take centuries. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. You're all, you're also seem to be very open to this. Look, at the same time, we can be morally strong and very clear mm. and very open yeah. and mm. not apologetic but at the same time we have to acknowledge the reality that we need cheap fast easy available socially acceptable alternatives right. at mass scale globally right. we're really going to achieve the sort of outcomes we're after which I, I think that's doable right yeah that's absolutely doable. doable it's doable even right now same yeah. with renewable energy that's doable now yeah if the companies that make the money from 
petroleum and whatever other nuclear and that, if they just switched just it doesn't take much of a tangent to yeah. go on a completely different path it's just a different way of, of thinking that just it's that people worry people worry maybe that oh if i change this then i'm not going to make the same money the profits going to, profits are disintegrating all over the world right now because of covid so why not take this as an opportunity to do things differently moving mm. forward um this factory shut that factory shut okay what could we do instead as we move back out of it the government's throwing money at things i don't know that i'm getting into politics then and it's not really my it's not uh not something i have any control over yeah. but my daughter said the other day we were talking about how they can make a difference they're always talking about this stuff at school you know in the future what do you wish you could do and she says she said it before in a variety of different ways she said see if i was like proper magical mum, i would make everybody vegan she got upset one day because she was different and I, and, and they, something had happened at school and it had been raised again. She's the only vegan in the village kind of thing. And she, I said, we'll have to have this discussion now about veganism. And ultimately she's getting to the stage now where she could have some choice. Yeah. We, we all indoctrinate. I, I talk about this in my paper. There's somebody at my work who had an issue with the fact that they thought I was forcing veganism on my child. And everyone forces their things on their child. You do what you think is best for them. Yeah. If you're religious, as we were speaking before, you're religious, you raise your child within that religion. You don't give them an option. Yeah. Um, you don't you, bring your child up to be amoral and then let them right. choose whether to be moral or immoral. Right. Exactly. You follow your own moral compass and, and, <laughs> and you indoctrinate them into that. Maybe that, maybe using that term makes it, mm. has, gives it negative connotations. I don't know. So Maya has been raised without religion, but understanding that her granddad is religious, that her family have a different religion, that I used to have a different religion, and maybe in the future she'll choose one. She's been raised as a vegan, as an ethical vegan, not just in terms of the food. So age appropriately, I explained to her as we go through, you know, this is why we do this, this is why we don't do that city farm visits and all that kind of stuff that just does my head in so she gets it but if she wants to later in life choose a different path then i think that would be a real i, I think she's unlikely to to be honest mm. because at all times she's understood why getting back to when i was little i would just want to know why this why that why that why not something else yeah. so raising the next generation to be more thoughtful and i think children are children really do care Mm. they care about each other um and i've been i've been guilty sometimes of maybe being a little bit idealistic about children because mm. i've described them as being quite naturalistic they explore the environment they learn they're open-minded they're mm. you know like little scientists originally and then yeah. you know, we we teach them about things that aren't really true and they grow up yes there are instances of children treating non-human animals as you know, yeah. objects of curiosity and pulling the legs off spiders and so on. But, but sure. I think generally there is a, a well of natural compassion there as well. And if you put a small child with a, a lamb or a pig or, or right. a cow, they won't want to harm it either. So there is a sort of, and, and then again, society teaches them that it's completely normal to. Yeah, um, but they know. don't do it at the same time. So yeah. our kids, they, they went on a, a farm, city farm visit and they were feeding the lambs with the little bottles and all that. And then there was this and there was chickens and all that. Mm. And it's all very lovely. But then they'll go home and be fed it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you at the same time go, oh, that's a lovely lamb. I wonder whose plate that's going to be on next Sunday. That's it. But then, oh, you can't do that. You'll upset them. Oh, yeah. well, maybe we need to. Yeah. But people just don't want to deal with it. That's what it is. Yeah. I think and I think that. that's the heart of what we've laid out. In a yeah. purely technical sense, if we're really looking mm. at solving some of these problems and just yeah. causing less suffering, the answers are really actually quite obvious and completely achievable. But it is this but weird, not... but uncomfortable. And there's this right. weird, very powerful mesh of social norms and systems and mm. so on that stop us yeah. stop us moving in that direction. And I know and we're, we're running I, a little yeah. bit short on time as well, but I, I wondered if, if you wanted to just quickly summarise your... Peppa Pig paradox paper because I thought oh, yeah, that was yeah. a fascinating example of <laughs> exactly the the sort of root of some of these these challenges. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, I was looking at again that just came from a moment with my daughter where I'm thinking, you know, why is it that kids are sitting with a ham sandwich watching a Peppa Pig thing? Yeah. Just doesn't the two just so there's a whole bunch of stuff about whether or not Peppa even is a pig and maybe it's just an anthropomorphized mm. kind of version of humans and blah blah blah. But ultimately, it comes down to originally from the meat paradox which is why we claim just what we've been talking about you love animals but you eat them as well mm. how is that possible and it's about just really being more willing to be honest more more quickly in someone's life and um 
really you can't be sitting watching Timmy time in the morning and having a lamb, a roast lamb dinner. This this is that feels to me immoral. I feel that's exploitative mm. in many ways to children. Actually, we're not telling them the truth. Yeah, and it's not that we're we're not lying necessarily. Although some people do, is that the same kind of lamb? No, it's a different kind of lamb. No, that's that. But where we're not, we're not, we're just keeping it from them mm. because we know what would happen if we told kids what it yeah. was they were eating. Kids wouldn't want to a lot of the time, I think. So the Peppa Pig paradox looks at this contradiction that we we teach, we train our kids out of thinking about it. Mm. So it's about joining everything back up. Kids love animals. They All the stuffed toys that they have and all the programs they watch. And another paper I have coming out later in the year is about just how much that, it's more than half of the programs on TV have animal characters, either as lead characters or in vast numbers, Peter Rabbit and, you know, mm. you could reel them off, especially if listeners have got um, little kids, they'll know exactly. They love animals. And that just falls away as the TV programs get, as the, the age brackets get older, mm. the cute, cute animals and stuff fall away. But that, that fundamental, for us to use animals so much to encourage them to learn about the things and to want to know about the, the next thing, at the same time as feeding them, Sometimes the same species of animal just seems so vastly against any kind of regular, consistent yeah. perspective, you know? It's bizarre, isn't it? And I think that's, yeah. and more positively, it, I do mm. get this sense that there's a sort of latent, deep well of compassionate ethic yeah. that we can tap into, which is why these changes, these positive changes can happen quickly. Yeah. I think they can, and I'm optimistic. I do think that it starts... But it's, it's, it's twofold. We have to start at the top with systemic change. Looking at these companies that really are maybe quite resistant to altering what they're doing, but lots of them are now. Some of the biggest brands in the world are now providing plant-based options. Mm. Um, and then you start at the bottom, which is the start of life and, and bringing up our children to do what naturally comes to you. You wouldn't put a, a calf in front of a kid and they'd go, mm. they, they would want to interact with it that's yeah. that would be because we're mammals and we're we're pack animals allegedly and all that you know so i, I don't think we knock that out of people yeah very early on so um, from a social justice perspective for all the people that are involved in these industries for the animals that are involved in the industries and for the environmental harm these industries cause it's a no-brainer really but we start at the bottom and then chip away at the top as well. Yeah, That's it's a I great think. summary. And I think mm. the the same things, we spent a lot of our time talking about non-human animals, given it's such a stark gap in most people's yeah. uh, thinking. But I think a lot of these principles play through into human ethics as well. Yeah. And you talked about the power of humanism before. And in a yeah. way, this idea of sentientism keeps all of that, the positive aspects of humanism, and it's saying, ultimately, we are all sentient. That's what mm. matters. These other characteristics, right. these other tribal distinctions, these other boundaries have yeah. importance and meaning to people, but yeah. none of them undermine the moral value and worth of, of, of all of us as, as sentient Absolutely. beings. Um, and, 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 and I think that plays through into our human ethics as well, which obviously yeah. there are many having deep, ongoing challenges one group, if you've got concern and consideration for one group, it doesn't then automatically mean you can't have it for someone else. And yeah. I don't know why, I don't know how that ends up being uh, misunderstood because it, I used to get it a lot, be out campaigning and leafleting and shouting it and trying to persuade people I was being a bit angry and all that in the beginning. And people come up and go, but what about humans? I'm a human. Of course I care about humans, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's, that goes without saying. What I'm also saying is I care about this too. And so should you. Yeah. Um, so, and there's a weird mindset where people seem to think that most decisions are a win-lose, where you have yeah. to trade off and one more win. Yeah. When many of these things, and those situations do exist, but many of these things we're talking about are win-win situations, right? And, of course they are. And, and it's almost, some people don't really talk about progress in the context of humans because we've done so many awful mm. things and we've got so far to go. But in a way, I think we, d we have made progress and much of yeah. that progress has been because we've realised that expanding yeah. our circle of moral concern is good for the people who are doing the expansion as well as right, the right. people we're expanding to. It's not like yeah, it's not. It's not. It's, I think it's a false dichotomy. To reason. Yeah, can't have that. We can have progress and benefit people in the process, yeah. and the planet, and the animals. Yeah, it's it, it can be done, but it needs people maybe to be brave with their shareholders or other stakeholders, and maybe yeah. it needs for people to just think about things a bit differently but it's been happening and i hope it continues the progress that we've made as a human as a species in the last just in a century is phenomenal technologically yeah. and whatnot now 
it just seems to be the rate seems to be speeding up but I do have hope for it and it might even end up being in my lifetime depending on that'd be nice at least I think you might be right I think all of these social changes feel painfully slow when you're in them but you Mm. look back and they can turn fast for the right will and and focus and with as you said the bottom up and the top down at once let's see what we can do optimism yeah it's a great note to end on thank you so much it's been inspiring to talk to you what's the best way of people following you and learning more about your work and reading your next paper the links of course you can include links okay i do have for for spelling especially my own very uh basic but fully full website which is corinbocus.com and i'm also on twitter at lm corinbocus and facebook not so much that's not really about academic stuff so yeah the the website and the and twitter is probably the best i'm I'm a twitter newbie really i'm still a bit of a a rookie when it comes to twitter but i'm getting there yeah well i will ask all of my 263 youtube subscribers to go and follow you now so wonderful that'd be super i appreciate that a lot and everyone should read the Peppa Pig paradoxes. So, I think yeah. so. And there's some advice at the end as well for vegan families and non-vegan families and maybe how to look at things a little bit differently and just make a little bit of a shift towards what we're aiming for. That's great. Thank you. You've played a part today, at least in a small way, of helping normalise compassionate, rational thinking. Yeah, thank you for so. being my guest today. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?